children are dismissed, please open your Bibles to um, 1 Timothy. It's good to be back with everyone um, after an unexpected week off. And so this week, as opposed to last week, we'll be closing the book of 1 Timothy. It's been, I think, an exciting and invigorating time studying this epistle. Um, from start to finish, it will, we will have covered 20 messages through 1 Timothy. And then from here, the next five weeks, we'll be in the Psalms, the second book of the Psalms, Psalm 41 to 72. And then, um, in April, we will be beginning a uh, six-week series on the Bible, the doctrine of the Bible. It will be a topical series and just would encourage you to be thinking about the Bible, challenges to the Bible. We'll be dealing with things like why these 66 books and not others? How do we know the Bible is the Word of God? Does the Bible have errors? How does one apply the Bible? Um, how does one understand the Bible? Aren't there so many different interpretations? And how much authority does the Bible have? We'll be dealing with those things. So I look forward to that. But today, we, we come to a close in 1 Timothy. We, we look just at the last two verses of 1 Timothy. We'll be looking over those and then a review of the book itself. This is Paul's, Paul's final charge to Timothy. Guard the truth. So let's read the last two verses. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Lord God, um, we just pray that you would give us the grace that we need. Grace to hear, grace to understand, grace to apply, grace to be transformed by your word. Lord, we would be those who guard the truth. We want to guard your word. Protect us from errors. Protect us from wanderings away. Help us to cleave tightly to your word as that which gave us life in the first place and that on which we grow in our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so this last admonition to Timothy really comes in the form of the postscript. If you remember last week, we talked about how the, the, the text that Pastor Joel preached from three weeks ago um, verses 11 to 18 really form the climactic close of the book with a wonderful doxology, um, starting in verse 15. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see to him, be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And then Paul puts pen to paper one more time for two more topics. We saw his word to the rich in this age, and now his closing charge to Timothy. And the closing charge is very similar to the opening charge. This theme of guarding truth, dealing with error, um, caps, bookends the book. Turn back to chapter 1. And after a short greeting... In verse 3, we read, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. 
nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. But certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertion. So the, the book begins and ends on the same note. There's this faction, this group of people, these would-be teachers at Ephesus. Paul left Timothy there to start addressing this. And, and Paul hopes to show up soon, but in case he delays, this issue is so important that Timothy must begin the work for him. And after addressing it a number of times in the letter, it's still so much on Paul's mind that he gives one final charge. It's intensely personal. Look at how it begins. Oh, Timothy. And, and this, is, this is a loving sort of pastoral father figure to Timothy. Calls him his true child in the faith. And, and Paul is just letting his heart out there. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit that has been entrusted to you. And so you get an idea of Paul's zeal, his passion. This isn't some casual little, oh, by the way, can you please pick up some eggs on the way home? This is important. It matters. Much is at stake. And so our first point is to guard the deposit. Guard the deposit. And if you want to think in the put-on and the put-off categories, here is the put-on, what to do. In a moment, we'll see what not to do. But what to do is you guard the deposit. And that, of course, begs two questions. What on earth is meant by the deposit? I mean, does he have a bank envelope? What is it that, that Paul has entrusted to Timothy? And, and what does it mean to guard the deposit? So next to deposit, I want you to write gospel truth. Deposit means gospel truth. So the positive Christian doctrine, the gospel and, and the attendant teachings that, that bear with it. And that's clearly, just from the context of this book, what Paul is telling Timothy to fight for. But moreover, if you turn over a page in your Bible to 2 Timothy 1, the same language is used. So 2 Timothy 1, verses 10 to 14. Pick it up in the middle of verse 10. Our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And here it's identified as the pattern of sound words. Good teaching. Chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, 2-2. Two, two. This is our verse, our tough men program comes from. He tells Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust, there's our word, to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So this is multi-generational. Paul taught it to Timothy. Timothy's going to teach it to faithful men who are then going to pass it on as well. That's one of the ways that we guard the deposit. 
So if you want to turn back to 1 Timothy 6 now, the deposit is gospel truth. The pattern of sound words. You even remember the, the glorious Christian hymn that chapter 4 ends with, the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed in the world, believed on among the nations, taken up into glory. This is the, the truth, the deposit that Timothy is called upon to protect. It's very similar, in fact, to the charge that Jude writes in Jude 1.3, saying, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. To contend for the faith, to guard, to protect, to engage in a struggle over the faith. Which is exactly what Paul is calling Timothy to do. So the deposit then, we've seen, is the gospel truth. Now, there's an implication here. It means that we are stewards of truth. We don't make up truth. We are stewards of truth. When someone gives you a deposit, you don't, you don't mess with it. You, you safe keep it. You guard it. You take it where it needs to go, but you don't alter it. Um, Hendrickson, in this commentary, writes, the suggestion is that the Christian message is not something which the church's ministers work out for himself or is entitled to add to. It is, of, it is a divine revelation which has been committed to his care and which it is his bound duty to pass on unimpaired to others. We are ambassadors, not delegates. Ambassadors can convey information, but they don't get to negotiate. You know, it's not as though God gave us the gospel and we can, you know, this weekend only, 20% off. Gospel. You know, other churches may have the Ten Commandments. Well, you get to pick which eight you want to keep. It doesn't work that way. There's a deposit given to us and we are called to guard it. So how does one guard it? Well, guard it, there's two things involved here. You've got to know it and defend the truth. You've got to know and defend the truth. That's what guarding entails. It starts with knowing because you can't protect what you don't know. You can't protect what you don't know. One of the reasons why, I think, in so many churches in our country today, doctrine is off is because for so long there hasn't been any doctrine. The seeker-sensitive movement encouraged churches not to teach doctrinally, but to keep the messages aimed at the seekers who are just coming in, new believers. And there's, there's something good about wanting to gospelize people, but there's a danger when the church isn't taught truth, they aren't able to separate truth from error, and they can't defend what they don't know. Which is why Paul in Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.2 tells him, I want you to pass on what you've heard. This is what we attempt to do here with our Tough Men programs, with our small groups, with our Bible studies, with our expository Sunday morning messages. Because you can't defend what you don't know. You can't. Church history is rich with stories of the church contending for the faith. Man, I'd encourage you, if you've never done anything in church history, pick up a small book that just highlights some of the key events. Um, Augustine fighting over the sinfulness of man. Athanasius fighting with the Arians over the deity of Jesus. I mean, fighting. Um, Athanasius was exiled six times from the Roman Empire 
brought on false trial, all because he was defending the deity of Christ, because he was guarding the deposit. It, it's, it's exciting, some of these stories. And the church is littered with men who have done this, and if we're ignorant of it, and if we're ignorant of the battles that have been fought, then we're not going to care. We're not going to care. You read about the Reformation and what took place as, as the Reformers were fighting over the gospel and arguing with words about justification by faith, and you start to understand what a treasure it is that we have this. And, and you're not going to play fast and loose with it. When you understand the blood that has been shed to get the gospel to us undefiled, that other men have contended, and now it's in our lap, the ball's in our hands. What will we do with it? Will we guard the truth, or will we say, you know, who knows what it means, and everyone's got their own view, and, you know, this is my personal understanding. We are to defend and guard the truth. And we got to defend it. And, of course, this doesn't give us permission to be jerks, um, to be quarrelsome, but it certainly does mean that when we encounter error, we try to lovingly address it. Um, in, in, in Titus 1.9, talking about the qualifications for an elder, Paul writes this, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict. He's got to be able to say what's true and he's got to expose what's wrong with the error. And, and that's how you guard the truth. This isn't, again, this is not licensed to be brash, argumentative, quarrelsome, pugnacious, a jerk. But neither can we vacillate to the other end and so be afraid of offending people and so be afraid of, of causing controversy that we keep our mouths shut when truth is attacked, especially within the church. That's the context here primarily is the local church. Um, and within the church, we care about truth. We should care about truth. And we should care about lovingly exposing error if and when it enters the church. You wonder sometimes when churches slowly go off the tracks, where were the faithful sheep in the body to, to cry out and bring attention to it? So we're to guard the truth. That's the put on. Negatively, we are to avoid false knowledge. Avoid false knowledge. Paul writes... Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. And so, again, we're getting to this, this false teaching. It's been described up to this point as myths, endless genealogies. We saw it had an aspect of asceticism, harsh treatment to the body, severe, austere treatment. Here, it's profane and irrational. It's, it doesn't put Christ at the center. It doesn't make much of God. It celebrates other things. It's, it's ungodly. It's silly. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's dangerous because it's seductive. There's this appearance of knowledge. There's an appearance of the inside scoop. I mean, who doesn't... It's the same part of us that likes a juicy piece of gossip that we are the ones who know and not everyone else knows and I know and you don't that we like about that is what's so attractive about a lot of false teaching. It's sort of this notion of having one leg up on everyone else. I know the secret key to interpreting the Bible code and you don't. I figured it out. It, it's seductive and it's appealing and it presents itself as wisdom. I mean, false teachers don't present themselves as false teachers. 
they present, they're, they're, they're generally attractive, comely, charismatic, nice guys. It'd be nice if false teachers all had curly mustaches and wore top hats, but they don't. They're generally really nice guys. Otherwise, they wouldn't be popular as false teachers. And you, you identify them by what they teach, not the smile on their face, not their, not their personableness. It's dangerous because in, in professing this, in buying into this, people swerve from the faith, Paul says. That's what's at stake. Why does this matter? Because where false teaching creeps in and, and is not identified and rejected, those who buy into it swerve from the faith. And so instead of holding fast to Christ, instead of holding fast to the gospel, they drift off into other things. And, and Paul is concerned for people. He's concerned for the church. And so this is on his heart and on his mind. And the letter ends with an interesting note here. This grace be with you. I don't know about you, but my Bible has a little footnote at the bottom, and it tells me that the you, that final closing word, grace be with you, is plural. Grace be with you all. And this means then that Paul is intending and well aware for this epistle to be read by the entire church at Ephesus. This is one of the reasons why when we were introducing the book, I said that the letter itself, in some sense, is, is Timothy's personal authorization for the amount of power and authority that he's going to exercise in the church. That rather than being seeing Timothy as a pastor, he's really more of an apostolic delegate, a proxy apostle. He's got Paul's authority to do what Paul tells him to do. Paul intends the church to read this so that everyone in Ephesus knows that Timothy has been specifically tasked by Paul to do these things. Um, there are no longer any proxy apostles. He's named in the text, so this isn't a transferable position. Um, but he has a unique authority in the church. And so Paul addresses the whole church. This is a letter for us as well. It's a letter for us as well. And this is how Paul brings this letter to a close. And what I'd like to do now with our remaining time is to do an overview of the book. You know, every Sunday morning, as I, as I prepare to teach, I have two goals for the body, for the congregation here. One is that on a given Sunday that God would be pleased to speak through his word, to encourage faith, to grant life, to build people up, to rebuke sin, to encourage the faint-hearted. I, I want people to have a practical benefit from God's word, from God on a Sunday morning. But long-term, my goal is that people would better know their Bible so they can come back again and again and read and reread. And that's one of the reasons why I've emphasized the structure, the, how the book fits together. And that's why now we're going to take some time just to quickly review the book. So that after spending 20 weeks in it, in the years to come, you can go back to 1 Timothy and, and it'll feel more familiar to you. That you can feed yourself from it. So, if you would turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we'll just look at what is the key passage of the book. What's 1 Timothy all about? 1 Timothy three fourteen to 15 tells us why Paul wrote he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, 
the pillar and buttress of the truth. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, I may, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And that's why Paul wrote. It's nice for him to tell us. And so Paul wrote to instruct us how to live in God's family, the local church. That word for conduct yourself just means to walk about, to live, to conduct oneself, to live in God's family. The church is a family of families. It's God's household. It's a big house. And so this letter, if you want to think, what's 1 Timothy about? 1 Timothy is about living in the church, living in God's family. And the letter consists of five major themes. We've, we've already looked at the first one, which is the war between truth and error. The war between truth and error. The book starts there. The book ends there. And at three other occasions, Paul attacks directly these false teachers. We'll just look at one or two of them. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. And again, this is to, to show the danger of false teaching. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faiths. See, first you swerve from the truth, and then you crash on the rocks, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And then in chapter 3, um, verse 18, he puts forward the truth. This great gospel hymn, great indeed we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, and taken up in glory. There's, there's the gospel. There's truth. And then in chapter 4, he launches back into attacking the false teaching of asceticism that really, if you want to be spiritual, you deny yourself any earthly pleasures. You don't eat meat. You don't get married. You just live an austere life, devoid of pleasure. That's how you get godly. And Paul demolishes that. saying it's a wrong understanding of God's creation. Then he comes back saying that there is a discipline for godliness. But it's not a discipline that's based off of physical things are bad and spiritual things are good. Rather, it's a discipline that wants to grow to be more like and to know and love more fully the living God. And then, again in chapter 6, he lashes out again. And we've seen this over and over, this priority of the war on truth, the war between truth and error. Secondly, we see that in the, in the letter... Paul repeatedly instruct us how we are to relate to each other. And this, of course, ties in with that main theme. This is about living in the, in, in the church, living in God's family, how to conduct ourselves. So it's not surprising that a major theme is how we should relate. In chapter 2, we saw that with the men praying with holy hands. The women conducting themselves appropriately. Um, how to relate to widows in chapter 5 chapter 6, how slaves are to relate to their masters. We have all these different relationships. Um, in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writes, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. 
younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. What Paul's doing is he's, he's giving Timothy instruction on how to relate to the various segments of the church. And if you add it all up, you, we know how to deal with the rich, we know how to deal with the old, the young, men, women, children. They're all covered, these relationships, how we should be relating as a body to each other. Thirdly, we see how we're to relate to our church leaders. There's a lot of attention given in this letter. In fact, 1 Timothy and Titus are the two places where we can see the list of qualifications for elders and deacons. And so Paul is very concerned that that leadership be qualified. He lays out the qualifications in chapter 3 quite clearly. And then after saying, here's the qualifications, he tells Timothy and the church at Ephesus how they are to relate to those leaders. Those who do well deserve double honor, and those who are in sin need to be rebuked in the presence of all. And, And so that's how we are to relate to our leaders in the church. And fifthly, oh, fourthly, I'm sorry. You see, how to relate to money. How to relate to money. It's mostly contained in chapter 6, but he spends a lot of his time in chapter 6 dealing with this. Warning of the dangers of desiring to become rich. Of, of viewing godliness, religion, as a, as a way to make a quick, quick dollar. Encouraging us to be content with what we have and content with our food and our clothing. And, and not to fall into the trap of wanting to be rich. And remember, you can be poor and want to be rich, and you can be rich and want to be rich. The problem is a heart that loves money, a heart that craves money, a heart that trusts in the security that money can promise but can't really deliver. And then um, we see in chapter 6, verses 17 to 19, how those of us who do have wealth... And as Americans, we have wealth. How we are to put our hope not in our possessions, but in God. How we're to be generous, rich in good works. Tells us how to live that way. How to conduct ourselves as the wealthy in Christ's church. And fifthly and finally, there's the theme of the value and promise of godliness. That word godliness has shown up a lot in this letter. It made its first appearance in chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul says that he wants us praying for kings and for all who are not positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every respect. Um, the next time we see this term is in um, chapter 4, verses 7 to 8. where he encourages Timothy to train himself, to discipline himself for godliness. This was the contrast with the false asceticism, the false harsh treatment of the body. It's a subtle difference. You see, the false teachers are simply saying the physical world is bad. And the physical pleasures of this world, good food, marriage, those are bad too. If you want to be spiritually minded, you shun all of that. You cast it off. You live an austere, harsh, simple life. And then you'll be godly. And Paul says, this, this God's creation is good. It's good. And all things will be received with joy and thanksgiving. But, lest Timothy counter too far over and become some drunkard and glutton, he tells Timothy, there is a place for discipline. 
And it's not the discipline to suffer for the sake of suffering. It's the discipline to pursue godliness. The discipline to be single-focused in your love and passion for Christ and to remove those things that would distract you. Not because they're inherently bad, but because they're distracting you from what's best. The good is the eternal enemy of the best. And so in verses, um, chapter 4, verses 7 to 8, we read, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds the promise for this present life and also for the life to come. Why, why should I be so concerned about godliness? And remember, godliness is this love and passion and focus on God and the fruit of the life that flows out from it. It's about our hearts getting more fixated and focused on God, loving Him more, being passionate about Him more, and then living lives that bear that out. That's what's meant by godliness. And he says, look, it has a promise for this life and a promise for the life to come. Now the promise is life, that we may know him. Jesus said, this is the life, that you would know God and his son, Jesus Christ. And you can know the him now. And a heart that wants to know him more has that promise of life. And the good news is if you know him now, you will get to know him for all of eternity. It's a promise for the life to come. There's a lot at stake in cultivating a heart that wants to know God more. There's a lot at stake. And then it shows up one final time in chapter 6, verses 11 to 12. And this again is the passage that Joel preached from. Paul's charge to Timothy. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue, chase after righteousness, godliness, Faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good of fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul's concerned about a body that doesn't just fight for the truth abstractly. It doesn't just, you know, gets their doctrine right, but love God. Their hearts are consumed with passion for him. He tells Timothy to train himself, to strain after, to pursue this type of affection and desire. If you just finally turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, I just want to close with one final point. If you remember from our introduction to Timothy, the, the church at Ephesus shows up another time in the Bible. It shows up another time in the Bible. The risen, resurrected Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus, dictated a letter to the church in Revelation chapter 2. He actually dictates seven letters to seven churches. Ephesus is the first on the list. And so if you're wondering, hey, did Timothy get the job done? Hey, did the church respond to Paul's plea to purge false teaching? Did they? Did they listen? Did they do what they were told? Well, the answer is sort of. Yes, sort of. Let's just read this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, 
The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. If this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. See, the church got part of Paul's admonition. You see this. They're zealous to screen their teachers. There were false apostles, people who said they were sent from the Jerusalem church, and they weren't. There's the Nicolaitans, whoever they were in their heresy, and they, they rooted them out. But somewhere in their zeal for doctrine and the truth, which is good and commendable, somewhere in there, they lost love. They lost their love. They lost their passion. They lost their godliness. Their hearts hungered and thirst for God. And that's the danger, because you can overemphasize. There's two ways to fall off a table. You can be the accepting, open church that never deals with sin and never corrects doctrine because you're just too warm and affirming. There's plenty of churches you can find like that. But there's the other side, which is, you know, the cold, dead, dead right church. Dead right. They're right, but they're dead. They've got the truth and hearts of stone. And that's a danger too. And you ask, you know, which, which piece of this is more important? Which blade of the scissors is more important? Which wing of the airplane is more important? You don't need to turn there because I've got the verse written there. But I think Paul sums this balance up well in 1 Timothy 1.5. That's right there in the notes. You can just fill in the blanks. Remember, he's just told Timothy, shut down the false teaching. Stop it. There's Bible studies that are getting closed. There are elders who are getting removed. There's teachers who are teaching silly myths, genealogies, and Timothy is there to stop it. And that may seem harsh. That may seem authoritarian. And then Paul writes this word of balance. The aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love. What I've got in view is not truth simply for the truth's sake, but truth so that it will cultivate hearts of love towards God that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The aim of our charge is love. The reason why we're concerned about truth and error is love. That's what drives us. It's not the desire to be right. It's not the desire to lord our correctness over somebody else. If we're correcting doctrine, it shouldn't be because we like winning an argument. It shouldn't be because we like being right. It should be love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And there's the balance. Truth and love. Truth and love. A love for the truth because it produces love and godliness in others. You can be zealous for the truth just because you like being right. You like having all your ducks in a row. 
Ephesus to some degree became that church. And so, whereas I don't fear Martinsdale's in danger of becoming the open, tolerant, hey, you know, who's to say what's right or wrong? As we pursue truth, and let us pursue truth, but as we pursue truth, let us remember to pursue truth for the sake of love, for the sake of knowing God better, for the sake of loving him more, for the sake of getting the gospel out to the nations, and not as an end in itself. This is how Paul instructs us that we are to conduct ourselves in God's own household. This is his family. You are his family. We are his family. And Paul talks about Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. An amazing privilege that is. And now we're going to prepare for communion to celebrate our great Lord and Savior and in some sense brother, Jesus Work on the cross for us. I'm going to ask a pianist to return and the ushers to come forward. This is a memorial meal that celebrates the death and burial of Lord Jesus Christ. It celebrates and announces his return. It announces our unity with one another, Paul says, for we all are one loaf. We share from one loaf. We're all drinking from one cup, expressing our unity. We express through this memorial meal that it's the Lord Jesus Christ himself on whom we feed, sustains us, and gives us life. For he is the bread of life come down from heaven. Paul, in explaining this um, meal, wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. Um, We are now going to pass the bread.